Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we're back in Bern for the second episode of Michael Friedrich. We're going to chat about competition. Competition is something that you will face sooner or later in your entrepreneurial career, but there's certainly no way around it. Michael and his personal stories seemed to me like he's playing chess in real life. That was very interesting and fascinating to see at the same time. So we will, of course, talk about how you can actually handle competition and also closely linked to that, how you can actually identify trends and sort of see the playing field that you should get active on uh, from a more macro perspective. We will also cover what you can actually then do if you are getting into a competitive situation and also focus because that's very closely linked on the topic of the exit. Because in his second company, Michael basically created a successful exit out of a very competitive situation. So in that regard, we also focus on the strategy, what it needs to create a good exit and the success factors that lie behind that. As always, you can also find additional content on social media. So make sure that you follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Michael, welcome back to the second episode. It's great to have you here again. Sure. Today, we're going to talk about competitors and how to handle or even beat them or make them acquire you, as it was in your case. So let's start with the first question. What mistakes do you see Swiss startups making repeatedly when it comes to competition? I think it starts with uh, having a clear understanding of how global the market is you're playing in. If it is usually, uh, uh, and for most tech startups, it's uh, it's a global market, global meaning the entire world, maybe not China, but at least all the rest. And then you need to be in a position to be strong enough to, to take it up with uh, challengers that come from all those uh, places and that usually have much deeper deeper pockets so many times swiss startups they don't dare to be large enough and aggressive enough to succeed on a global level um, and to to plan that from from the get-go do you think that this is a mindset problem that we have in switzerland it's just switzerland is so small uh, that you uh, when you want to expand you all, you all immediately are in a different geography in Europe. So Germany is a different market from you, from Switzerland. It's very different from France, not even to mention Italy or other countries in Europe. Right. When you're in the US, um, you have a much bigger market that is more standardized. So you yeah. can you can expand and multiply your business model to a much larger population. In Europe, that's not so much the case. And, and so... Uh, you need to be much more aggressive in thinking of how your business works in other geographies as well from the start. You cannot just focus on getting it working for one type of environment and then know that this 
is a market that is 300 people, 300 million people. Mm -hmm. But here that it actually might just work for seven or eight and, and then you need to have a different model for Germany or for France. Sure. Do you still think that Switzerland is a good market to get started, to have your home base as a startup? It, it is because you have a lot of talent, you have good work ethics, you have great infrastructure, you have a, an, an insane quality of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yes, if you, it's, a, it's a perfect place to be. I, I usually, I travel to the US quite a bit and for me it's, um, it's perfect to be able to, to go there to play. Right. Because if I succeed there, it's very successful. It's really potentially super big. Mm -hmm. But when I fail, I can go back to Switzerland. <laughs> Whereas if I'm in the US and I fail there, I'm on the street. Right. I have no social security, nothing. And uh, here I have everything to be safe. And so I don't understand why not more people in Switzerland are aggressive entrepreneurs because they have such a privileged environment. They can go out and play, and if they come home, they have health insurance, social security, whatever, education. They don't, people don't even realize the privilege, what, what type of privileges they have. I also wonder about it, the exact same question very often, and I think, yeah, it's, you just cannot explain it. You, you, basically, you cannot fail in Switzerland. No, you can't. Uh, you can explain why people don't move. It's because they are spoiled. Probably. We yeah. all have and not, not enough that we need to fight for because building a business is hard work sure. and uh, it's a, it's a, it has impacts on your, on your entire life because you, you spend a lot of energy to build your business. But then again, it's a really great, a great adventure. Absolutely. And I also think a much needed adventure because in the future, startup companies might be uh, even more important than today. I think so, yeah. Yeah. In all your ventures, you basically also face competition. And I would like to start with the first venture, uh, the Burn Bite Bears. And there you had a very interesting situation that we discussed about when we did the briefing call for this interview. You had your smartphone uh, contract uh, comparison platform. And in the name of your platform, you used the term handy for describing smartphone, which was, and I think still is, owned. Nuttel. Nuttel. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. it was Nuttel, right? Uh, which was or still is uh, owned by Swisscom and sort of protected. And basically there, they got not very happy about you using their protected name. So Nuttel uh, for Nationales Autotelefon is a registered trademark of Swisscom that they uh, registered during Monopoly days in the 80s, I believe. And uh, when mobile phones emerged in Switzerland, that became the standard, the household term for mobile phones. Even today, people Absolutely. call it yeah. Nuttel. Yeah. And what people does, don't realize in general is that this is, again, as you said, a registered trademark of Swisscom. So when we, when the, the mobile phone market uh, opened up in the late 90s, we had that platform, Nuttelinfo.ch, where we compare tariffs. And uh, at the time, Swisscom was not happy with the fact that we transparently showed how expensive they were compared to competitors. And they tried to block us by uh, taking legal measures against us because, uh, on, the, on the grounds of trademark infringement. So how did that show? What did they do? They uh, actually uh, sent us uh, uh, a lawsuit uh, to uh, and ask us to, to stop uh, using that uh, trademark. Uh, because again, they they were not happy to be always the last ones on on the list, 
and we then had a nice uh, dance with them in a sense that we uh, played the David against Goliath uh, play where we uh, went to the media and told the media that, hey, see, we want to bring transparency into that market, much needed transparency. We are innocent uh, 17 years old kids. And uh, the big monopolist, our ex-former monopolist, wants to prevent that and, and tries to fight us with legal measures. Um, please help us at least make sure that everyone knows that what Swisscom is doing. And that obviously created a lot of interest at the time. And we, were, we had a lot of media attention. We then also went to a um, arbitration session uh, with them, which essentially uh, gave Swisscom the right to sue. Uh, that's just part of how that works in, in Bern. A very simplified way, and uh, that created even more noise. And, and then, after, but uh, and then, long story short, due to that media attention, this uh, topic got uh, ultimately Swisscom decided to buy the domain notalinfo.ch from us for a price that was at, at the end seed investment for this uh, for for uh, for Burn by Bears and allowed us to to hire first employees. I think this is a, an incredible story because it really shows that you were not afraid of the competition or the lawsuit even, um, and, and really sort of, as you described it, went on the dance. But still, you were teenagers. How did that make you feel? Because this is a very, very bold move that you take to go to the media and to really sort of pick up the game, pick up the fight with the, with the Goliath. Yeah, so so that was a, a move that was uh, spearheaded by uh, Thomas Brunimann, the, the the president of the association at the time, the, the teacher, mm -hmm. and Martin Lucas Andre, uh, who 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 saw that angle, and uh, you know, you're 17. What do you have to lose? It's pretty fun to do that. But still, I can imagine a lot of people who are 17 and in a similar situation think, oh oh, oh no, I better back off. Yeah, we we didn't, <laughs> and we we saw no need for that. We we thought that there is, you know, it's still uh, from from the from the time you 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 start to dance to the moment the dance ends, there's still a lot of time, and you can still do a lot of things. And in the worst case, you just stop doing what you do. Uh, meaning you just give up the name. That was would have been the worst case scenario. We didn't cause them real damages. It would, they've never asked, uh, they've never threatened to sue for damages. Okay. They just wanted us to stop. And uh, so that was, that was a manageable risk. Absolutely. So is this also how you go about these sort of compet competitors, I don't know, challenges, if I can call it that way? Do you sort of evaluate the risks and the upsides and then basically decide, hey, we actually cannot lose that much, but potentially we can win quite a lot. Let's, go, let's do it. Let's go for it. We don't actively look look to pick up fights. That's not that's not the idea. That yeah. would be that would not be accurate. But you're always and, and Swisscom was not a competitor to that extent. Uh, right. But but when you when you work with competitors, you you need to you need to know that they can they can start a fight, mm -hmm. and that that is already good to keep that in mind. And um, but then you want to position yourself that you can still, the, the purpose of the business is not to fight the competitor. The pur purpose of the business is to win customers and to, to build a successful business. Sure. And that means just knowing your competitors so that you can position yourselves in a way that allows you to 
to create maximum value mm -hmm. despite the presence of competitors. Right. So maybe put that in a, in a more positive yes. positive way. Absolutely. But you should definitely, you should know your competitors. There's no need to be afraid of them mm -hmm. and just try to find a smart way to, to, to interact with them. Yeah, makes sense. And during the time, as you said, you picked up the dance with, with the giant sort of, were there any doubts along the way where you thought like, hey, maybe it wasn't a good idea to actually pick up this dance or were you really like, sure, hey, this is the, the right way to go? When you, when you build a, a business, you need to have a certain amount of ignorance. And I think <laughs> that came in handy at the time. Okay. We, no, we didn't see any, any real threats okay. and there were none. Right. Even in retrospect, okay. there were no real dangers. And then um, you also, in your second venture, you also had a, a pretty interesting competitive situation. Um, if I understand it correctly, you had basically developed a great technology, but as you also said in the, in the first uh, episode, it was pretty difficult to market the first technology that you had. And then you basically also had to think about, hey, how can we actually return the money of our investors? What can we do about this? Yeah. Um, let, let me come back to that question, sure. if you don't mind, yes. and just complete the, the competitive story of the previous one. Because Burn by Bears, we sold that to a competitor. Where we were, we were fighting, Comparis at the time was yes. a competitor. And at the end, we realized that selling them what we have makes them stronger and gives us a way out so makes them willing to to pay for something that we have and that is how we had our first exit mm -hmm. now with uh with imaco we had a similar setup in a sense that we were building these cameras to visualize blood flow but as discussed in the first episode it was a new market and a lot of clinical evidence would have had to be developed to really create awareness among the physicians that this was a really valuable technology to, that uh, hospitals would pay for. And so we were actually struggling quite a bit in, in late 11, 2011. We had just closed the financing around and we realized that actually, yeah, the product, the hardware, the product itself is great, mm -hmm. the device, but it was not a good product because hospitals were not willing to pay for it. And we felt very desperate about that because we already had raised money and created a lot of uh, hopes. And as part of that uh, situation of tremendous pressure and also distress, we then discovered a US or Canadian company mm -hmm. that was addressing the same customer need that we are, were going for with a different technology. And this company at that time, Novadac, they had uh, already been public uh, at the Toronto Stock Exchange. They had already raised more than 100 million in financing, were creating a little bit of revenue, uh, but they had a very high uh, share price because the stock market in the US uh, or North America believed that they were the only company out there with a technology to visualize blood flow. And they had a lot of patents. They did really good marketing, really good fundraising, mm -hmm. essentially telling people that they were the only ones being able to do that. Right. And when I saw the share price of that company and the, uh, the, the, the sales price of their product, I realized that this was our, going to be our angle. 
because we were able also we were also able to visualize blood flow mm -hmm. compared to the Canadians that require an injection of a contrast agent, so an injection with a needle yes. injection. We didn't require any injection, so we were purely contactless. So I knew we had a story from a technological perspective, right. and I also knew that we were at least half the price or even less wow. expensive than those Canadians. So what I uh, realized is that because they're, we had a, a leverage to put their share price under pressure. Mm -hmm. And that is then the, the game we played for two years. I was traveling to the US once a month, talking to analysts or, and to investors and to physicians, educating about them about what we do, essentially telling them, hey, you already know this space because you're involved with Novodak. Sure. We are coming up with a new solution that it has, is non-invasive and less expensive, why don't you also invest in us or support us? With the whole idea that this would put the management team at Novodak under pressure to then, you know, take, to protect the share price of Novodak mm -hmm. and hence to, to, to put up uh, an acquisition offer for, for Imago. And that is how it ultimately then, two and a half years later, led to the sale of Imago. And that also explains why the Novodak management team and I never really became close friends. <laughs> Understandable. For, for us, it was an important, it was the only way out. Mm -hmm. uh, at that, when we sold Imago, Novodak already had 150 or 200 million in financing. We had five. Yeah. Just to give you a sense for the amounts of money that would have been needed to become standalone independent. And, and when they actually realized this, that, hey, this is the only way out that we can actually also deliver a return on investment for our investors. Um, that I realized in, in autumn 11. Okay. Yeah, relatively soon. It okay. then took us a lot of time to execute on the strategy for, for two reasons. First, not everyone in Imago, not every investor um, was agreeing with my assessment that the product itself would not sell. Okay. They, they didn't want to believe me, which led to a lot of infighting. Um, they still thought that it was just my inability as a salesman uh, and uh, yeah, a little bit of personal games. And they also, um, yeah, and, and so, and, and they, for, for it's, not a, it's not a standard strategy to go out and to, to play the share price when you're a, a five people company uh, and to do that type of hedging. And they were not, they, they didn't believe that this strategy was going to work and, and hence did not support that. So I think we lost about one and a half years um, of time just to get the internal stakeholders aligned, wow. which was a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of energy wasted. I can imagine. And what finally convinced them about that strategy? Only the, the result at the end. Okay. With, with uh, yeah, some people uh, don't even believe it today. Okay. <laughs> but that's okay. And what made you so confident that this was the right way to go. Because, you know, other people might have self-doubts, for example, and, and if investors tell you, hey, it's actually your lack of sales capabilities to make that a success, some people might even think, oh yeah, maybe they're true and sort of break under that pressure. I, uh, I was out there trying to sell those products myself and I saw that this is not going to work. Okay. That was, that's pretty straight. And then when you see that the other company really has a share price that is just not justified, mm 
How did you do that assessment to come to that conclusion? Um, at that time, they had maybe 12 million in revenue and about half a billion in valuation. Okay, that just, yeah. that's, an, that's an easy <laughs> comparison yeah. of multiples. Yeah. That, uh, fortunately, in, I believe it was in summer t- 2012, uh, when uh, the initial professor and investors wanted to fire me, uh, we had a, what we call a white knight come in, uh, an investor uh, uh, who then became the chairman as well, and he believed the strategy, mm-hmm. and he put in money himself, and, and that saved my job, and then mm-hmm. allowed us to to work on that strategy. So it was on, yeah, it was a very close call. That's yeah. a lot of pressure on you there. It's it it was uh, a lot of pressure, yeah, and uh, at. Uh, one point in in January two thousand twelve, I also um, I, I wanted to stop. It was too much, okay. and it was uh, uh, because people were shooting against me personally, and that was just too much. And then um, my uh, again the co- my coach uh, Red Hartman that I mentioned, and, and my girlfriend, she uh, then supported very actively, and also my co-founder Mark from the previous company, mm-hmm. he uh, he was very actively supporting. Uh, and then I recovered, and, and then it's really thanks to that uh, white knight that we we made it, and, and then yeah, we we fought together to to make the sale happen. Wow, yeah, that's a really really crazy story. Yeah. I would like to also talk about the execution that it then pulled off after the one and a half years of internal negotiation about the path that you should pursue. Basically, you said you flew to the United States um, basically once a month uh, to make some noise and get the contacts. I can imagine this is also pretty difficult because Switzerland and the Swiss startup ecosystem with companies that they've never heard of is probably not on the US map. What counts is what what you if that you when you reach out to someone that you have relevant information then they don't care where that information comes from. Okay. So I the first move I did is I met the CEO of Novadak. I sent him an email saying, "Hey, uh, as we're going to compete, as we're 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 in the same space, and as we're going to compete, it would be nice to meet. Uh, this is what we do, <laughs> and uh, it was very, yeah, it was a very bold email, yeah. and, but I had his attention immediately, yeah. and uh, we were at that time, no one cared about our website, so we had Google Analytics, the real time monitoring on, and I when I sent out the email, I tracked Google Analytics, mm-hmm. and I then saw that he opened it in uh in uh toronto and then his engineers opened it in in uh vancouver and the regulatory person opened it in in the us and i knew where they were and i saw that they were popping up and spending minutes on the website so i knew that we had them by surprise that they didn't know about us uh, because otherwise they would not have spent so much time on our website all of them Mm-hmm. And uh, then I knew that we had uh, that we had uh, the cards, uh, or that we had a good momentum. And then we met a few days later at the conference in San Francisco, and that's how things then started. And what did you discuss in that meeting? What was the topic? Um, I was just trying to get to know him, um, telling him what we do, and uh, just trying to make him understand that we can be a pain. Okay. And how did you do that? Were there any specific tactics or information that you decided to share to make that message clear? Uh, well, I t- yeah, well, I told him that we were non in- that our technology was non-invasive compared to his, and that we were much less expensive, 
-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, that was that already is a good first first step. So I I, I think it's always good to um, to know the to know the, the other people mm -hmm. in, in your space and to not just know the salespeople on the front line, but to know the management, the CEO. As a CEO of a startup, even though it's just a 10 people company, you're the CEO. Mm -hmm. So you should know the CEO of the other company as well. Yeah. And usually they want to know you as well. Sure. And, and so there's a mutual interest and that is where you can start. And, and that is also yeah, how we, in, in general, I would recommend that so even if you're just a small team, get to know the relevant decision makers. And, and if you're the CEO, don't waste much time in, in, in low ranks. Um, make sure you also know the, the decision makers on top because you're a CEO as well. Yeah. Doesn't matter if the company is like ten times bigger than you. No, it doesn't. Not at all. It's even better that you know them. And and there is no need to go in with an ask. Mm -hmm. Go in with a, hey, we are in the same space. Okay. So it's just pretty neutral opening. It's super aggressive, <laughs> but it's just uh, it's just uh, you you can phrase it nicely. Okay. And then what happened after the meeting? So then he uh, invited us to, or invited me to go to meet the technical team, mm -hmm. uh, which I then did a few months later. I went to Vancouver, met the engineers, and, and that is how the relationship started. Then in summer, we went over for negotiations for, for a potential partnership, okay. which then uh, failed because they themselves were in discussion of being acquired by an even bigger one. Mm -hmm. And then we also had to spend a lot of time making sure that we got more money in to finance the continued activities. Right. And at the end of the day, um, so that took a couple of iterations, always with a lot of stakeholder management here in Switzerland as well to, to make sure the company was going to stay afloat. We then got the clearance to for, from the F uh, Food and Drug Administration to sell devices in the US. So these were important milestones where we start to place devices in the US with mm -hmm. surgeons to get to get um, exposure there. And ultimately what then led them to to move is we their camera is based on a fluorescent agent or fluorescent marker that you inject into the bloodstream that mm -hmm. binds to the red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And so that then circulates all over your body. And this marker, the fluorescent marker, the molecule, is a, a standard molecule that is known for 60 years so that you can, you can buy that in a pharmacy. Where they had their patents was in the camera technology itself. Mm -hmm. But being out of an optics lab ourselves, we knew how to make that work. So what we did is we invited them over to look at our original technology, mm -hmm. um, which was um, kind of a radar for red blood cells. But we had also purchased a Microsoft Surface tablet and added, configure, added a bit of optics on the backside. And then we're able to show essentially the same images with the contrast agent as well on mice. And we just showed that to them on a, on a $2,000 tablet with another $2,000 in optics, essentially being able to do the same as their machine does that they were selling for a quarter million. Whoa. And that then that then triggered them to say, okay, we need to get those guys under control. They're too dangerous. And, and that is why they then made the offer. And uh, we discussed the term, uh, discussed the deal in mid-January 
14 and then the deal closed in, in May 14. Uh, so four months of contracting back and forth. And what is interesting about that is the technology that was ultimately creating the trigger, this uh, speckle camera that we attached to a Surface tablet, mm -hmm. it took us less than a month to make that happen and less than $10,000. And that was different. And so all the other engineering work we did before, mm -hmm. the whole four and a half million or so, five million invested in the original technology that we licensed from EPFL was completely useless. It was that, that one decision uh, to buy a Surface tablet uh, and to, to try it out with a technology that looked from an academic point of view inferior, but was actually the one that was going to make it uh, on the market. Wow. So that, that's another reason for also uh, in reference to the first session of our discussion. Uh, it's usually not the technology that you get from the lab that is going to make the, uh, the, the decision at the end of the day. You still managed all the operations sort of, and you still had to keep the company alive while pulling all this negotiation and basically chess game in real life uh, too on, in, in parallel. How did you manage and, and basically survive that? Because mm -hmm. that's so a lot of work. The whole product development supply chain regulatory work was done by Mark, my co-founder. I was focusing on sales, strategy, and finance, uh, meaning the game. Right. <laughs> so, so that's that's where we had a clear separation of concerns. Mm -hmm. And he did. He made sure that the business worked at home, and I was out running around and, and trying to 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 get money back for the investors. Nice. Yeah. And then, how did he actually decide about the price? Because that's also not a super easy topic to handle, I can imagine. No, and particularly not in that setting. It, it was essentially, um, it, it was based on a, we had complicated uh, liquidation preference mechanisms uh, mm -hmm. in, in our shareholders agreement. And we knew we had to get above a certain threshold value. We had to get above 10 million for us, the founders to also earn money. And then, so it was clear that it had to be north of that, and we tried to go as far as we could. But it was also clear that Novadak at the time was not being able to pay twenty million, okay. because they again were, they were loss making and uh, only had like seventy million left on the bank. They could not yeah. spend too much either. Right. So it was finding a right balance between what we needed for us to make money and and what Novadak was capable to pay as a, as a as a loss making. Uh, business. Are there any recommendations from, from your end for other entrepreneurs out there how to spot these opportunities as you did with Novadak? Yes, I think what people always learn in, in everywhere in all the entrepreneurship courses is know your customer, focus on your customer. Mm -hmm. But what people usually don't realize is that you're, you have two types of customers. You have the commercial customers, which are the ones that buy your product. Usually, people know them quite well because right. they have been trained on focusing on their needs and their segmentations and behaviors and everything. But the second category of customers are equally important. That's the, the ones that do not buy your product, but buy your company. And it's really important to know them as well and to know them from the start. Because you, if you want to sell your company or if that is an option for your business when you start it, 
you need to know your your landscape that you're in. You need to know the trends. You need to know how they think. You need to know the people. You need to know what they need, how they decide, what their pains are, what what they're working on internally. And, and people sometimes, novice entrepreneurs tend to underestimate the importance of, of knowing this landscape as well. So this is sort of a balance between making sure that you get the revenue in, that you need to grow your business, yeah. but also have a clear positioning amongst the competitive landscape. It acquires to not necessarily need to be competitors. There can be right. other acquirers, yes. but it's um, but yes, you need to but you need to understand both of those landscapes or all the three: your customers, your competitors, and parties that could be interested in buying your business. Right. Sometimes there's a strong overlap between competitors and mm -hmm. and uh, potential acquirers. Yes. In, in your case, it was clear the, the rationale behind the acquisition was you were a very dangerous competitor with a better technology. Are there other reasons that you see why companies acquire startups? Fundamentally, I think there's two reasons why companies buy uh, startups. There, there, there are synergistic reasons to, to uh, have more market share, to have better operating margins, to have more revenue, whatever, just to grow. And the other reason is the defensive move to protect what you already have, be that, again, customers or revenue or margins or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, usually, psychology of loss dictates that the fear of loss is much higher than desire to gain more, meaning you're much more willing to fight for what you already have to protect your existing business then you are willing to spend extra hours a day to grow your business. Mm -hmm. And that's the same for companies. So if they have, if they already have revenue and you go and, and, and have an impact on their growth curves or their revenues or the share price, you have people's attention immediately. Right. And then they're willing to act and react. Mm -hmm. If it's about growing, they, they have also always other more important things going on. And, and so getting the attention for a synergistic deal is usually much harder than it is if you can threaten them. Now, the art is to place it in a way that it is essentially a defensive move that the acquirer can sell as a synergistic move so that they, that they say face, okay. that they can show, hey, we are growing our space. We are doing that not because that little startup yeah. is threatening us, right. but because we are visionaries and we want to grow the business. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why it is so important to position your company in a way that allows you to play that game and to enter that dynamics where you have a lot of leverage, but everyone can save face. Yeah. Is that something that you think you did well with uh, the, the exit that you did? Or is there something that you would do basically a bit differently in, in that perspective? Um, we would certainly have tried to, we could have played that more aggressively okay. than we did. We could have focused on that uh, Microsoft Surface tablet-based solution uh, two years earlier and saved okay. a lot of money. Um, it's always very difficult to say what you could have done better because sure. it's, it's easy to then in <laughs> retrospect say, uh, uh, it's it's always very very hard to get it done, and um, it shouldn't. Yeah, selling that and playing that game should not. 
it should never be perceived as uh, as being done out of arrogance. Yeah, right. And sort of this perspective that you took there, also the rationale and the sort of strategic analysis of the landscape, maybe potential acquirers or also competitors. Is that something that you should already be very much focused on before you actually start the company or actually when you started in the early days? Or is that something that more develops the more you like the, the more time you spend on working on the business? I think it's good to know it early on because then you know that whether you it's it's part of also your competitive analysis mm -hmm. to know that space and right. to know people who are interested in serving the same need. Right. What people sometimes ignore is that a need can be served in many different ways. Uh, and people sometimes in their competitive comparisons focus only on similar com uh, technologies mm -hmm. instead of s all different ways of how a need can be solved or addressed. And I think if you do it holistically, it really helps you to understand the potential of your opportunity at hand. Also, how you need to protect it from an IP perspective, if possible, mm -hmm. and 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 how realistic it is that you're going to succeed, right. and how much you know what, what the beast is that you have in front of you. You also had investors in your company. Um, some of them were supportive of your plans; others were doubtful, and yeah. probably also wanted to go a different path. What what's the role of investors when pulling such a strategy? It, it's very important uh, it's, uh, that people pull, uh, again, that, that people are working towards e uh, with, e with, e with each other towards the same goal. Mm -hmm. Because then you can spend most of your energy on solving the, the business challenge you have instead of keeping people aligned. So having an agreement or healthy discussions and then an agreement on, on how you want to approach a certain challenge is, is, is obviously very helpful to a business. If you have too much uh, disagreement, it's uh, a lot of distraction and a lot of wasted energy. Yeah. And to a certain degree, I, I, I guess you also need some money to actually be able to pull that off, right? You need to, cons as an entrepreneur, you constantly need to raise money and convince people that what you do is sound and uh, so that people put in more money. So, so one topic I, I, I think that people need to keep in mind is that when you are competing with another company, you need this company has invested energy and credibility into an internal project. And there are people who have been fighting inside that company for doing solving a problem in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And when you then come with a solution that is different to what they have developed internally, there's a lot of psychology at play to make sure that you can either isolate those people, mm -hmm. meaning you need to go a hierarchy level up to convince that your approach is also sound or maybe even better. And they then need to have the willingness to fight their internal teams. Or you need to get the buy-in of those people who have initially been thinking in a way that you're going to challenge now. And that whole not invented here syndrome or uh, all the skin that is in the game of people that have been fighting internally for a specific approach, mm -hmm. that can be hugely influential of the course of a, uh, of a business relationship. And so make sure you understand these dynamics mm -hmm. and understand also when you interact with the company, 
what the interest of the stakeholder that you're of the person that you interact with is with regard to internal developments because they can either be happy that something new is coming up so that they can promote their themselves internally that would be great or, which is great but also not easy because they still then have internal enemies right that if company politics uh, plays out against your favor can again be difficult for your relationship with them mm -hmm. or, or they or they might be able to to uh, influence that and convince superiors that despite having invested millions into one approach another one would actually be better and how did you successfully do that with Novadac? well with Novadac, it was an external parameter that we influenced it was the threat on the share price yeah. So that that wasn't too much of a topic then. No, it, no, but yeah, I can imagine that now with in the robotics environment with this motion, where essentially every player in the space has some sort of robotics initiative, mm -hmm. this becomes a more important topic. Okay, and this is also a very good question. What is your future plan for distal motion? Do you plan to play the same game uh, again, or do you have any other plans? We we want to make sure that Dexter is going to our so that's the name of our surgical robot. Dexter is going to be successfully used in as many procedures as possible. And if if the right time comes to partner, then we will obviously be open to that. Um, but it needs to make business sense for for the product and, and and our customers and also for our investors. But I'm sure you're scanning and observing the strategic landscape. We need to do that. It's important because at the end, uh, they can be potential uh, competitors, meaning a potential threat, or they can be potential partners. And so we need to we need to know the other people on the dance floor. Have you ever been in the other seat, sort of, on the table, meaning that somebody attacked you with such a competitive landscape? No, but again, we are. We, we, were, we have been too small so far mm -hmm. for this to be really relevant. Okay. So but maybe in the future, who knows? <laughs> that's one of the challenges when you grow your business that you, you need to know when the healthy time is to, to get out. Right. Because uh, you, need to, you will come under pressure at one point in time, particularly when you start to be successful, new people are going to come out. And, and that is probably also then closing the loop with your very first question in that session um, when you are when you're successful with your product uh, you still need to have enough firepower financially to defend that against new entrants and some people have been successfully starting businesses also mm -hmm. here in the Swiss ecosystem they have then been overtaken by others because they could not them put themselves into the position where they said, oh, now, instead of just focusing your startup on an exit, why don't we build a business to acquire others? Right. Because then you're in a position of strength and then you can see new technologies or new approaches emerging as something that can expand and strengthen your portfolio. Mm -hmm. But for this, you need a lot of financial firepower to pull that off. And you also need expertise on the team to be able to view the the space in that way and to have financial financial partners in that that can uh, help you support those types of transactions do, do you think that swiss companies can get there or is this something that will rarely happen from your perspective 
it, it globally happens very rarely. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't know if it per, per citizen happens more often here at, or more, less often here than in the US, but it certainly takes a different mindset. It, it, it requires you to build a company to be strong and independent and to be able to acquire. Mm-hmm. And that means you also need to raise money for that. Uh, and that's very different from just building a company to your next value inflection point with the hope that someone will buy you. Sure. And you're in general more successful when you have more options, meaning it's a better strategy to build a business that is then strong enough to acquire others. Because then you're never with your back against the wall and you have all, all your options on the table. But it's a different mindset. And sometimes in the ecosystem here, we don't learn that mindset enough we are more big enough we are we're more uh we are more focusing on how to then exit it at one point Mm -hmm. instead of of asking ourselves what would it take for us to be the acquirer and uh that that is i i think one of the yeah one of the great places to end up as a business when you're then strong enough to to be the one who says, well, this startup is actually has interesting technology. Why don't we buy that? That would be pretty cool from a Swiss startup ecosystem yeah, perspective. Yeah, there, there are some who do that, uh, but it's n- clearly not the majority yeah. by far not. So think big and have big visions. This is probably also a good lesson to take away from your statement. And, and have deep pockets <laughs> that support your vision. Yeah. Do you think that it's actually possible to get these deep pockets in Switzerland or you need to go outside of Switzerland to raise Mostly you can get outside, but that's not that's actually beneficial to also get the money from other European or or US or Middle Eastern or or Chinese markets because that also opens new commercial opportunities. So you would even recommend to take this step? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It it gives you more diversity also with your investor base Mm -hmm. because you you always need more money. And when you have a more diverse investor base, you can afford that one investor or two investors, either because of the geography or because of the profile, it's a strategic versus uh, mm-hmm. financial, that they don't support the next financing and around anymore because you have enough others that still support it. And so betting on one horse is, is pretty bad when it comes to investors. You want to be, you want to have different segments from a type perspective and geography perspective Mm -hmm. and stage perspective because that again gives you optionality and if you have optionality you're you're never just left with one meaning the back to your wall that makes sense also from a strategic perspective i think so yeah yeah before we wrap up this episode i have some rapid fire questions for you meaning i give you two or three things to choose from you have to choose one of them and uh, also quickly explain maybe one or two sentences why you actually made this choice. Sounds good? Good. Cool. First one, United States, Europe, or China? Commercially, it's the US. Mm-hmm. From a long-term um, market opportunity, it's China. Okay. Motivation or discipline? Uh, motivation. Why? Uh, because you need to be able to stand up every time you hit the wall. Work-life balance or 80-hour work week? Uh, it's a marathon, so work-life balance in a, with a lot of commitment. But you need to be able to recover. Yeah. Small 10-people teams or big 100-people teams? Um, small 10-people teams, as long as you can. 
And the last one, competition or monopoly? Competition. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time and I wish you lots of success with your current project and I hope that we can also see you playing a great game of chess in real life there. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way, you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discover our podcast. Thank you very much for your support. Next week, we will be back in Zurich to talk to Monique Moreau, former CTO at Cisco and currently president at the Vetri Foundation, which focuses on personal data management. We will talk about why she left her corporate career, how to deal with big players like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and why we should care about our personal online identity. We hope to see you again for an all-new episode of The Swisspreneur Show next week.